it does all end here, I feel incredibly fortunate to have had the opportunity to be the voice of the hometown club in the sport that I love. If you told me when I was eight, 10 years old, it was going to be my job. When I was an adult, I would have said, what could be better than that? That was Brad Feldman, the longtime television play-by-play voice of the New England Revolution. He's the guest on today's episode of New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast. Welcome to New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast, the podcast for serious soccer players and their supporters to help further their development and navigate their way throughout their soccer careers. And now, here's your host, Matt Langoni. Welcome to another episode of New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast. Today I'll be joined by longtime television play-by-play voice of the New England Revolution, Brad Feldman. Brad, thanks so much for taking the time with us. Matt, it's a pleasure to be on. Unfortunately, no Revs playoff games to call this fall. After uh, last year's record-breaking success, they missed out with 42 points on a 10-12-12 record. So uh, just kind of some quick com- comments from you on where things went awry for the, for the squad this year. Yeah, it's, it's kind of an empty feeling after the Revs made the playoffs the previous three years under Bruce Arena. It was a real contrast from 2021 where everything seemed to break right. You know, they set the record for one-goal victories. This year, they led the league in uh, points surrendered for winning positions. I think that, you know, you certainly create your own luck. And I, I, it was a combination of, you know, I think some of Arena's comments about, you know, the injury situation and some of the other factors that played into it are, are not just... Excuses, they're real factors. People who complained that the Revs didn't replace the departing Adam Boutejan Buchanan and Matt Turner, you point to George Petrovic, who was really a bright spot, Giacomo Rioni and, and Dylan Barrero. Those are the guys who came in, but Rioni and, and Barrero were injured most of this, of the second half of the season. Gustavo Bo, who was supposed to fill in the scoring gaps and was, you know, scoring at a torrid pace in the middle portion of the season when he was healthy, he was missing half of the season. It's re- it's really easy to point to some of the off-season signings, the older veterans, as part of the problem. And I, I think that's probably right. At least two of the th- three guys, and maybe all three, like the- Leggett played well when he was here. But Sebastian Leggett was never going to be a replacement for Tejon Buchanan. And then Altador and Gonzalez, I think that those, you know, the way the seasons went for those two sort of speaks for itself. But I do think that the Revs technical staff did a really good job of obviously Petrovic, who's arguably now the best goalkeeper in the league. And is, you know, it's great that they re-signed him. He was a bright spot. But, you know, if if you hadn't had those long-term injuries to Bo, Barrero, and Brioni, I think that would have mitigated some of the, you know, the really boneheaded mistakes they made that cost them points in the standings. And you might have seen them sneak into, you know, places five, six, and seven. But that's not the way it went, and they have to own it. When you've got Carlos Heel leading the league in chances created, and you're not in the playoffs, that means you're not finishing enough of the chances. You know, he was fourth or fifth in assists, but led the league in chances created. And that tells the story right there. Right. I was curious to see how this season was going to go, too, after after last year's single-season points record and then the, the manner in which they lost in the playoffs and the penalty kick shootout to, you know, NYC. Uh, that, I was just curious to see, like, how they would respond to that coming into a new season. I, do you think any of that, like, weighed on them this year? Just that- I do. I do think it was uh, a deflating sort of an end. And again, it sounds like excuses, but it was just such a strange 
with, with the international break and then, you know, them getting the, 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 the first seed for their regular season performance meant they had this crazy three week plus gap between their last regular season game and, and the NYC game in the playoffs last year. So they, they just came out and looked like, you know, stale and wooden and not the team that had, had, you know, blown through the schedule in the regular season. I think there was a hangover. And then it's been talked about and written about a lot, but it was a disjointed stop-start sort of a preseason where, you know, having the Cavaliers series canceled because they had to, to withdraw from the competition because of funding and logistical issues, you know, you can understand it, you know, with the Haitian team, but that was meant to be almost part of the Revs preseason. And it just cascaded from there. Like everything that kind of could have gone wrong went wrong. You know, it, it started when they surrendered the two goal lead late in the snow at home against Real Salt Lake, one of the strangest games in the history of, of the, of the team. And then that same sort of helpless feeling seemed to follow the team down to Mexico. They had that three goal aggregate lead, surrendered that lead and lost on penalties there. And they didn't, it didn't feel to me like they recovered their mojo at all until they had that little stretch, you know, in the middle of the summer where they had some good results. You know, you think about the three nothing road win against Orlando and the two, two draw at, at Toronto where you're like, you know what, this team could maybe make some hay down the stretch. But there was like a three-month period there where it just felt like things were wrong, you know, and it wasn't like there was backbiting or finger-pointing. It just the same momentum, that same positive mentality that sort of surrounded the team in 2021 was not present for the the early and middle portion of the season this year. Obviously, one of the the major storylines with Major League Soccer going forward is the, you know, Earlier this year, the league announcing the 10-year broadcast deal with Apple TV, which, you know, which will be the home of all the league's matches starting in 2023. You know, fans will be able to watch every MLS match in English or Spanish, but but they'll you know have to subscribe to a new MLS streaming service. This means no longer will there be any local TV broadcasts, which you know you've been kind of the synonymous with the franchise for the past you know two decades with broadcasts. And you know, I saw one of your your sign-offs last month from from the Gillette Stadium broadcast booth. Was, was that at all emotional, doing that final that final sign-off? What was kind of, you know, knowing at the end of that game that was going to be that sign-off for you? Obviously not knowing what, what really the future will hold. Definitely emotional, and we did it again in Chicago. We wanted to do a sign-off after the last home game because the home technicians and production people and operations people at the stadium are such an integral part of what we and I have been doing. And then we did it again in Chicago and anybody who's interested, you know, the team put it out, put it out. I had it on my social media, the Revs TV, Twitter account, very, they've chopped it up different ways, but you know, there's a retrospective video of some highlights from the broadcast. And then Charlie and my verbal sign-offs along with the two arguably worst free kicks in, in revolution history tagged on at the end of the, the long version of the team website has that. Yeah, I think back across the years, like my, my over the overwhelming emotion that I feel is gratitude, like really, and I'm not trying to be glib or, or, or corny in any way, but you know, if it does all end here, like, you know, I feel incredibly fortunate to have had the opportunity to be the voice of the hometown club in the sport that I love, you know? And if you told me when I was eight, 10 years old, it was going to be my job. 
when I was an adult, like I would have said, well, I'm like, what could have, what could be better than that? And that's the way I still feel. So, you know, I think where it gets, it's been tough for us is some of the deaths in, in the television family. You know, a lot of people know about Paul Mariner and what he meant to me and to the broadcast as well as certainly the club and the fans. But uh, also our longtime director, Sean Jensen, passed in July of this season. And then several other technicians like uh, Leo White, John Zanini, who is also a big figure in our province college basketball and and you know a few other people Ray Strunk who worked some of the games as a cameraman so we in the last two years have experienced a lot of loss COVID was very and I think that that's where it really like it didn't just feel like oh well we're ending a, a TV sports package that you know soccer fans and Revs fans pay attention to but I have no illusions that like we you know have the same level of viewership or following as you know, say, you know, Boston Celtics or, or Red Sox. But, you know, in our little family, it would have been, you know, a milestone, end of an era kind of thing. But where I got emotional, quite honestly, was thinking what these people who I worked shoulder to shoulder with for all these years meant to me and to us. And I wanted people to know, like, you know, Charlie and I are the front-facing component of the, of the telecast. But there's so many people who's you know, work and care and effort go into it and the times that we have on the road. And it's a little like being on a team, right? Like when things go wrong, it can get hotter, the collar, but you go through those moments and you evolve from it. Relationships survive that. And then you're closer as a result of it. And so going through all the old footage and going through all the old photos to help put those things together and then to write the script and to think of like, I can't leave this person out. I can't leave. I know I'm, I know I'm going to leave one of these people out. I don't want to, because I don't want anybody to feel disrespected or ignored. You realize that, you know, th- th- this is like, this is, these are like the times of your life. And these are the people who you, who you shared these times with. And I like, again, like I'm not trying to sound trite, like, like any success I had was, you know, rested on the shoulders of these people who supported me. And that's, that was really the overriding emotion. And, uh, you know, we just all missed Paul Mariner like crazy. Right. I mean, you're a New England guy. You know, you went to, went to school at Belmont Hill. You, you, you're, this is your region of the country. And like I said, you're, you're synonymous with these broadcasts. I mean, your voice is what I think of when I, when I think about watching Revs games. I mean, it's just for, especially for people who, you know, who got in kind of on the ground floor and been watching this progress over the years. How important do you think, those local broadcasts were, I mean, they, they were, must've been massively important and not just in this market, but markets all over the country. Well, I think that sports, you know, I think people do, you know, you, you saw the outpouring of, of a gratitude and emotion when Dennis Eckersley retired a couple of weeks ago too. I watched those two moments where, you know, his sort of unofficial sign off when they thought that they might be reined out. And then when the club did the tribute on the, on the, on the bull for him. And, you know, I think it, it's not specific to soccer. I think what you're going to have with the new TV package will be co- really good, but different. But I think the local telecasts, especially in markets where you have a tradition of having a link between the fans and the local broadcaster, and also some of the newer MLS markets where there's been, you know, like the TV and the, you know, like, you know, Atlanta, Seattle, where, you know, they've had good viewership numbers, even though they're newer and the relationships are shorter. You know, I know that guys like 
Keith Costian with Casey Keller and and Steve Zakwani and those those guys in Seattle and and Kevin Ega down in, in in Atlanta. Like they've forged a bond and helped help tell the story of their successes too. And you know, from what I understand, have good ratings to sort of support that. And so, you know, I think you know in the traditional towns, you know, traditional quote unquote sports towns. I think it's important too, but in some places like DC where Dave Johnson's done it the whole time or LA Galaxy, Joe Chitino is an OG too, right? But then there are other places like Chicago where they've gone through, you know, off the top of my head, like five or six different play-by-play guys and multiple analysts over there, you know, now 25 seasons. But I would say generally it's very important. And that there will be something lost. There will be some sort of like radio syncing option. So fans can get, you know, I don't know, you know, those details continue to evolve, but it will be a feature. So it's not like the local announcing component is going away altogether. And, you know, so, but for the television, I think it's been an important part of the history. And I think someday, whether it's ESPN or somebody else does the, you know, the 30 for 30 or the sports century on the early years of the league, those calls are going to be integral. One of my favorite things I've done was getting to be one of the voices in the the mini documentary that MLS Films made on the great 2004 Eastern Conference final at RFK that the Revs unfortunately lost on penalty kicks. I think mean, you know it was not a you know great outcome for New England, but it's considered one of the greatest games ever played. Our broadcast was the one that ended up being the broadcast of record, even though Fox Soccer Channel had it. They lost satellite connection. So no, so the version that was. So they switched to us on national TV. That was the only game, the only Revs game that was ever on Nesson because there was a conflict on our other wow. broadcast partners. And then they they pivoted Fox Soccer Channel from their own broadcast with Max Bredos and Christopher Sullivan to, it was Greg Lawless's first game in the booth with me because Adrian Healy had a conflict. And it ended up, it was a classic. It's 3-3, went to penalties and... I encourage anybody who's listening to this who hasn't gone, you can go on YouTube. I think the title of it is like, if they had video review, it would have been 8v8 or something like that. Because like the tackle in the first, in the first 10 minutes, you know, it opened with Shalri Joseph just stapling uh, Jaime Moreno in the stomach with a high boot for a yellow card. And then, you know, the, you know, all kinds of revenge and retribution and, you know, a tone was set early. And so like, but what I'm saying is like, and then they interspersed Greg and me with our calls. And I was like, there should be a whole library of these, you know, for the early history of the league. I think they did some, do some other good ones, but that's what I'm saying. It's going to be different now. You're right. not going to have announcers who are tuned in day to day in the same way. Cause you can't be, if you're covering all, you know, 20, it's going to be 29 teams regularly. You can stay on top of it, but you're not going to have that same sort of organic you know connection to the fans and and the and the team but listen it's a different time i understand what they're doing with with the apple tv deal i think in many ways it's going to be you know great for the league and there will be some early growing pains but you know that we're in the you know 21st century and you're going to see more and more of this with the big streaming services not just apple but you know that that's the way sports tv is going New England's soccer journals, The Goal, will return after this. Hey, here's a great new idea in fundraising. Soccerhead's New England Comedy Fundraisers. This is better than a stand-up show. It's an event that your community will never forget. You'll get soccer-themed comedy with Paul Nardizzi, who has been on Conan O'Brien, and Nesson Comedy All-Stars, 
along with Dave Radigan from Sirius Radio Comedy and Jim Roberti. There will also be giveaways and all sorts of extras. Want to make money for your soccer club and have fun while doing it? Email the guys at SoccerHeadsNewEngland at gmail.com. That's SoccerHeadsNewEngland at gmail.com. Are you serious about playing your sport in college? Do you need a flexible education that allows you to maintain your practice and competition schedules while also preparing you to succeed at the next level? You should check out the University of Nebraska High School. UNHS is accredited and offers more than 100 online courses, including NCAA-approved courses to protect your academic eligibility. Students could earn a UNHS diploma or take a single course for transfer credit. Courses are college prep, self-paced, and available 24-7, 365. Enroll anytime and take up to a year to complete a course. Visit highschool.nebraska.edu today. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England soccer? New England Soccer Journal and NESoccerJournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration on the New England soccer scene. Have every issue of New England Soccer Journal, the magazine, delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to NESoccerJournal.com to receive soccer coverage on clubs, college commits, prep and high school, division one, two, and three colleges, showcases, rankings, and so much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by going to anysoccerjournal.com. Just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Soccer Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. It's funny when you look back to those early days in the MLS with the baggy uniforms and just the <laughs> the the, fa- the fashion sensibilities back then. It was it was hilarious to what it's become now. And now you, you know you're seeing soccer specific stadiums popping up all over the all over the country. Really beautiful stadiums. Uh, when you you know step aside and look at the growth of the league, are, are, how, what 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 are the thoughts that come to your mind? Is it as it has it grown how you thought it would? Has it do you wish it had, has grown more over the last couple decades? What what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's funny. I think in some respects, soccer fans are yeah. I, I don't know. I it's grown by leaps and bounds. The quality of play, the facilities, the overall infrastructure. The fact that you have these great academies that are producing, you know, good, great pros. And, you know, you look at the revolution with their training center and, and you know, I can, I'm not the only one to say it, but you know, it used to be players one through 11 for most rosters were, were very good players. But, the, you know, the second, you know, you had guys making, you know, less than a paid internship would pay, you know, in the early years of the league to round out the rosters. And, you throw some guy on there when you had like an injury or, you know, caution accumulation who really wasn't a polished pro. Like he was a good college player and he was in great shape, but this, you know, you know, soccer, as we all know, could be a weakest link kind of a sport. And the cascading effect of that was that the standard of play didn't know it was, you know, harem scarum, very athletic always, but, you know, you know, you'd have these wizards like Echeverry Valderrama and then a bunch of, you know, track athletes sort of like crashing into each other off the ball. You don't see that as much anymore. The overall skill level, you know, 
because MLS is paying a competitive wage now, like the, the role players, even though they've expanded, people say, where are the players going to come from? Well, the academy system has provided a lot more good polished pros. And then with the, you know, the, the TAM contracts and things like that, they've been able to go, you know, to Mexico and Europe and places like that and get guys to play not necessarily star roles, but important support positions who then raise the overall standard. And so the cohesion of the games is much better. Did I think it was going to become La Liga or the Premier League by, you know, year 27? No, I never thought that, quite honestly. One of the things that annoys me is when I'm in a soccer pub and whether I'm just eavesdropping or I bring up what I do. And, <laughs> no, and, and people say, you know, MLS is blank. And I'm like, dude, there you don't do anything in your life as well as the worst guy in an MLS roster. Like, that's how I feel. Like, that's a great way to look you, at it. Yeah. Seriously. Like, yeah. Like, like, if you knew what these guys put into this and... And also, if you really just like went to one training session, you know, there are all these guys playing Sunday league who played, you know, a week of semi-pro when they're 22, <laughs> who then are like, oh, yeah, I could play Emily. No, you couldn't. You couldn't. Like, I've seen you play and you couldn't. And actually, I don't think you know anybody personally who could. Like, that's, that's how I react. And it sounds kind of bellicose, but it really does annoy me. The level of fitness and technical ability that, you know, now there are a lot of people who will like watch a game between two relegation teams in the Premier League and say it's it's a bad standard. I'm like, okay, well, if that's like you can tell me that there are players in the top leagues on the you know, teams in the bottom third of the table, especially England, who are overpaid relative to what players in the past got, relative to what these guys should command, just because you know, teams that are, you know, smaller teams in the Premier League are desperate to stay up, keep the money, and it's it's a very high pressure situation, but it, you know, the, 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 the top, top talent's not flowing to those smaller teams. And then by that standard, you can say, well, it's not a great game compared to when you watch Liverpool, Man City. Yeah, that that's true. But if you, if you're only, if you're an opera fan, you'll only go to the Met in New York city, then that's fine. If you will never go see like your good like the Boston opera company, because it's not world, world-class. Okay, well, that's the kind of opera fan you are. But recognize the people the Boston Opera Company or the Santa Fe Opera are top, top-level pros and people who emerged from the pack as elite. Like, Carlos Heald is an elite performer. And, like, he might have stuck in the Premier League if he'd hadn't shown up at a different club at a different time with a different manager. And so I think MLS is in a really good place I think it's going to kick on to bigger things. I think the new TV deal is going to ultimately give her a bigger, a bigger global footprint and, and better profile. I think they need to keep investing in talent. I understand star names drive ratings, but I, you know, because in our in, in sports that that does draw the sort of the casual viewer in a different way. But I think the main thing is to just keep raising the standard, keep bringing in young talents, and I think that that's. What I like about what the revolution are doing, this idea that, okay, Books out, Brioni in. Tejan out, Barrero in. Turner out, Petrovic in. And it shows you, like, that's great scouting by the refs. To, to, to find a diamond in the rough, like George A. Petrovic, you know, using their network, using video scouting, using analytics to get a guy who's a tiny club, FK 
Kuka Reach shows that their tentacles go pretty deep and that there are stones that have been unturned because there's no reason why like a Syria odd team should have found it, right? But the Rebbe right. beat them to it. And now if things go well, he's going to go on to one of the, you know, top two or three leagues. We don't know whether it be next year, two years, three years. But this guy is going to be playing for Serbia. He's going to be in the Prem or the Bundesliga or the La Liga. He's big time. We've all seen it. And I think that that's where MLS is now with the nice, the great facilities and the, and the influx of talent. And it just keeps progressing. So I feel like people who thought it was going to change overnight is like, oh, well, when they started, it was supposed to be the best league. And nobody, some of the, some of the marketing slogans over promise, but I also think, I think people can be very reductive in their analysis of these things. And I think now the last thing I'll say is now that the youth structure I think is more sorted out because, you know, we could do two whole separate shows about the structure of youth soccer in the United States. But I think that MLS has, has sort of steered things on course to make it more like the conditions are in, in the countries that produce the best players in the world. And for that reason, you're starting to see guys progress through the ranks. You know, it's great to see like the likes of Noel Buck and Esmir Bayrak Terevich and, and uh, Damian Rivera, Justin Rennix come in and, and play significant minutes when the Revs needed him to um, this season. And, you know, the Revs U19s winning, winning a right. national uh, title. But, you know, it's not specific just to New England. It's all the way through, you know, there's some, you know, obviously like someplace like Dallas with their huge talent pool and their academy structure were ahead of some other teams. But now a lot of other clubs have, have caught up. So all those things may be bullish on MLS. And it makes me feel like things have progressed in a good way. And if not the way everybody predicted, I have no complaints. I think it's pretty big time. When little Brad Feldman was growing up in New England, was was soccer the love right off the bat? I mean, was this the the sport that you just gravitated to? So here here's my honest answer. <clears throat> what 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 made the impression on me early was two things. I lived in and around Boston most of my young life. I was in Baltimore for two years. And we were right through the woods from University of Baltimore. And I was a sometimes ball kid for their games. They won the Division II National Championship. And this is before cable TV and everything. They used to get huge crowds. The games are free. We also used to go watch Loyola, Maryland. Huge crowds. Baltimore is like St. Louis, Milwaukee, some of these American cities where there was a big Catholic presence, big CYO presence. You could say it about Fall River, you bet for Providence too, but a little bit different. These were more like German Catholic and Irish Catholic heritage types of situations where the good athletes played soccer and it was a cool kid sport to play. Combined out with my grandfather taking me to see Pelé a couple times at the Cosmos and right in the first, even before they were in Giant Stadium, I got to go see a Pelé, you know? And so my formulation, my cosmology of, of the sports world Soccer with the emergence of the NASL and going to these college soccer games, which felt like pro games and big crowds. There's loud music. The kids, it was like scenes out of days that confused. Everybody is partying. And no, it was like <laughs> great no, movie. It was like the great movie. And it, but like imagine that around a soccer game every Saturday in, in Baltimore, 1974, 75. That made a big impression on me. And so, you know, and then I was when we moved back. The T-Men 
were a thing. And I used to go see them at Foxborough and BU. I played a ton. I played bass. Playing for my town was like a big deal with the uniforms and everything. And Belmont Hill, it was a little bit different. Like, so like my, the, the sport that I love to play has always been basketball. That's a whole separate conversation. You and me, better, could, we could do a pod on that topic. Because yeah, yeah. Same with me. I love basketball. No, I was outside playing at the park yesterday. You know, like I squeezed in a couple of games before I had to go to like a lecture at night. Like I showed up sweat. Like I, I'm a hoops head yep. from a participation standpoint. I played soccer. I was one of those kids who fell off the log at 15. My high school coach, who I'm still in touch with, is Revs. Season ticket holder still gives me the grief about that. Not that I was great, but like there, we had good players. It's a long story, but I returned to it in the nineties. I started playing, you know, in adult, adult leagues and stuff again. And, and I, you know, I don't play as much now, but for another, you know, I'd say I had a good sort of second act from like age 32 to age 48. I played a lot of soccer, but yeah, I was never elite. I think it's made it easier for me in some ways to cover the sport because it's not like I tried to do it and failed. I sort of, I recused myself. But the last thing I'll say is when I was young and it was great being in the Boston area because you could go see World Cup games on closed circuit when your coaches took you. I would go to Harvard Square, spend my allowance on world soccer and total football. And I'd like pull out the miter poster and hang it on my wall. Like I was very aware of who Paul Mariner was because like the 82 World Cup was a big deal for me. And I had the magazines and like I watched the 78 World Cup on closed circuit. 82, you could see some of the games on network TV. And so like I always followed the world game as a fan. And that was my, that's how it was my passion. It was almost like stamp collecting. It was a lens through which I could like see other cultures and understand the differences between Argentina's style and Holland's style and things like that. And I also had a job in France in the summer of 84 when they won the Euros. And I got to see when people flooded the streets when they won that and that, you know, the great teams with Platini and Tigan, people like that. And, I, you know, I played some street soccer in Paris and people were like, whoa, the American, you can kick the ball from A to B. They couldn't believe that, like, I could take more than three touches without losing. That wasn't great, but like, I could hang, you know? Right. And so, you know, I went to Brazil. I was lucky enough to go to Brazil and Morocco in my teen and early 20 years, 20s years. And I could see what the culture and the passion meant there. And so that is, the, the you know, you know, the, the college soccer, NASL, and then my travels are all imbued me with this love for those. But yeah, no, shout out to to, to George Sealy, the, the, the legendary coach at Belmont Hill, who's still a, a passionate fan and a Revs fan, world soccer fan. And he he fights a good fight. He he really fights, you know, he writes letters to get more mainstream coverage in, in the press and, and he has a great understanding of the game. And then like, I like, it's, it's a, it's a thrill for me when like he comes to rev season ticket holder events and tells me he's proud of me because I didn't do much for him as a player. I could have been a decent, you know, you know, right fullback or maybe defensive midfielder for him, but I didn't take it all the way, but I, I hopefully I made a contribution, to, you know, beyond that by doing what I did, you know, because I, I was never going to, I'm never going to be more than a D3 college player. We got one month until the World Cup. Who's your pick? I wasn't ready for that one. Oh, yeah. Like, put you on the spot. Yeah. Usual suspects. Uh, so. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, that seems like a logical choice. I mean, France is going to be right there, too. But Brazil is. Uh, yeah. 
Brazil seems to be the trend. Right. Brazil, France, Argentina, right? Like there are your three. Right, right. What's new? What's new? <laughs> Just another World Cup. That's right. <laughs> well, Brad, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this with us today. I, th- I feel like we have like five more podcast topics I want to have you back for. I don't even know if they're all about soccer, but I got to get it. Hey, hey, go hey, hey I, got, I, got no, I got nothing but time right now. Okay, I've right. <laughs> for 22 years, but I got a minute now for you if you want to call back. <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do a pickup hoops topic next time Next time we play. For we'll, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk hoops all day. I got, a hoop, I got hoops for you all day. Awesome. All right, well, thanks a lot, Brad. I'll be talking to you. Uh, thank you. Thanks again to Brad Feldman for joining the podcast. I'm Matt Langoni. Thanks for listening. New England Soccer Journal's The Gold Podcast is produced by David Yaz and is a Siemens Media production. You've been listening to New England Soccer Journal's The Gold Podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to our podcast. Or visit anysoccerjournal.com forward slash podcast. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful.